Well, good morning, Central Heights. Amazing job by the band. Hey, wasn't that amazing, that last part? Yep. Thank you for leading us in worship. Uh, my name's David. I'm the Young Adults Pastor here at the church. It's my privilege to be with you. We want to welcome you to our Sunday gatherings as we continue in this series that we're in called The Best Life in Ephesians chapter 1. And if you're just joining us in this series, we're really asking two big questions uh, throughout this series. And the questions go like this. The first is, what is the best life and where is it found? Two questions that in every way, every single one of us is in some way asking a question on some level, either subconsciously or consciously. We're asking, what is the best life and where can I find that best life? How can I get there? How can I experience that life? We're all ask, asking these questions, we're all processing them, and, and all of us are in some way on a, a quest to find an answer to unlock the mysteries of the best life, that, that desire that we have within us to have something more, something better than we currently do. We're all asking that question, what is the best life and where is it found? And those are big questions. Those are important questions. They're life-changing questions that we are looking at in this series. And to find answers to those questions, what we really need is something to kind of guide us, to lead us, to show us the way, to find the answers that we're actually looking for. And Ephesians 1 is, 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 is that, that guide, that, that, that honing system that's going to show us the way to the best life and where we can find that. And, and in, in reality, all of us in some way need something to show us the way. Like my wife and I, we, we moved into Abbotsford just about a year and a half ago, and we've really loved the city. But one of the things that's been really hard is when we showed up, we didn't really know where anything is. I didn't know where anything is. And if I did know where something was, I didn't really know the best way to get there. I really only knew that this was the, the church, this is where the church was, I knew it was across the street, but that was it, and so I had to ask a lot of questions, and that's something that's really hard for me to do, is to ask a lot of questions of people to get directions to go to where I want to go. Does anyone else hate asking for directions? Yeah, that's me, because I'm what you might call directionally challenged. I have a really hard time with directions. I think when God was handing out the spiritual gifts and, and he was handing out the one for direction, he passed me over because I really do not have it. And so I was put in this position where I had to ask for directions a lot. I'd say, hey, can you tell me how I need to get to this place? And, and inevitably people say, oh, it's really easy. All you have to do is go north on Sumas Way. And I'd be like, I have no idea what that means. None whatsoever. I have no idea what north means. I have no idea what south, east, or west means. I do not understand directions. I, this doesn't make sense to me. And so if you tell me to, to go east on McCallum, I'll be like, so is that a left or a right? Um, you know, I, I really need help with this directions thing. And so I don't know what it means when you try and tell me those directions. And so I need something more. I need something that's actually going to show me the way to where I want to go. And so what I did is eventually I, I, I opened up the GPS on my phone and that became like this guiding system that changed everything for me in trying to get around Abbotsford. I mean, GPS became my best friend and it was the only way I could find the place that I wanted to go. And the reason was, is the GPS has this built-in guiding system that showed me the way step-by-step step where I wanted to go to get to the destination that I had in mind. And this passage that we're in, in this series, Ephesians 1, it acts like a, a guiding system to, to get to the destination called the best life. The life that we were created to have, the life that God gave, offers to everyone who believes in his son Jesus. This chapter, this profound, beautiful, life-giving chapter is 
one of the guiding systems that God has given us to find the best life. And so if you're here this morning and you're looking for the best life, if you want the best version of life, God has not left us on our own to find our way, to try and figure out where to go to find the best life. He's given us a roadmap, and Ephesians 1 is a big part of that roadmap to getting the life that we long for, the best life. In Ephesians 1, Paul is going to tell us that this is where the best life is found, and this is how you get there. It's not found in a a formula or program or anything we can do. Paul is going to tell us that the best life is found in Jesus. Jesus is the way to the best life. And so if you have a Bible this morning, we are going to dive right in. uh, Go ahead and grab it and turn to Ephesians chapter 1, and we are going to read it in full and just let this amazing passage that Paul wrote thousands of years ago, just wash over us, and then we're going to dive into it and unpack it this morning. And so read with me. We pick it up in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ." as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glorious grace. See, what we have just read is one of the most amazing passages in the entire Bible. In it, we see stunning realities of who God is, what he's done for us in Jesus, and how that can actually impact your here and now, your eternity Everything about you, everything about your life, it is a stunning, beautiful, mind-altering, mind-bending passage of Scripture. Some of the most stunning realities that we can find in the Scriptures are found here. And the first thing that should stand out to you as you read this is that it is absolutely breathtaking what God has done for us in Jesus. Breathtaking how God has entered into time and history in a human named Jesus and done amazing things for us. And line after line, Paul lays out the, these life-altering realities of what Jesus has done and all that we have because of it. It's absolutely breathtaking what we have just read. Unbelievable riches. And at the center of it is Jesus. Look at verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heaven." places. And so Paul says, do you want the best life? Do you want something more than you currently have? Do you want the best version of life, the life that you were always created to have but don't seem to grab a hold of? It just keeps, to, keeps eluding you. Then you need to start with Jesus. 
because Jesus activates every spiritual blessing. Jesus activates everything that, that is found in this Beth, best life. Every single treasure that Paul is going to unpack from verse 4 onwards is unlocked in Jesus Everything that he, he's going to talk about is found in Jesus. He says, because of Jesus, we are adopted into God's family and become his children. Because of G Jesus, we have been redeemed and forgiven of all our sin, past, present, and future. Because of Jesus, we have been given a share in God's eternal kingdom. Because of Jesus, we have been given the Holy Spirit that God himself comes and lives inside of us and empowers us to live the best life. Because of Jesus, we have God's love, we have grace, we have a hope that can never be taken from us. It goes on and on and on. And Paul would say to you this morning, church, God has withheld nothing from you. You are incredibly rich in Jesus Christ. You are far richer than you already can imagine and dream he has held nothing from us. We have unbelievable riches, all ours, because of Jesus. And so if you're here this morning and you're hungering for something more and you want the best life, Paul is telling you, start with Jesus because he's the one that opens up the best life to you. It's all about Jesus. It's all about him. And so Paul anchors us in this best life found in Jesus in verse 4, and then he begins to lay out all these spiritual blessings that we have because of Jesus. And the first one is the one we're going to be camping in this morning. We find it in verse 4. Read with me there. It says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And so the first spiritual blessing that Paul is going to unpack is this, that God chose us in Jesus to be holy and blameless in his sight. God chose us in Jesus to be holy and blameless in his sight. Now there's two ways you can read that, ver that verse. The first one is you can choose to make this verse all about a word and the debate that comes with it, or you can make this verse about the stunning reality of who you become when you put your faith and trust in Jesus. There's two different ways you can read this verse. And if you choose to read this verse the first way, then you're focusing on that word chosen. And that's a big theological word that carries a lot of weight, a lot of baggage with it. It's actually been a word that's been debated about for a very, very long time. And the question at the heart of this debate is this, does God decide everything that happens in my life or do I have a part to play? Do I have a part to, pl to play in the choices and how my life turns out or does God choose and decide everything that happens in my life. Now that's a huge question and here's the thing, we're not going to answer that today. It's just impossible to actually answer that question. We're not even going to try and answer today because Paul in verse 4 is not trying to answer it. We're not going to go to a place that Paul is not actually going to take us. If we're going to be faithful to the text, what we're going to actually do is that we're going to follow Paul and his, his movement away from just focusing on a word to something far much more beautiful and great. And not to say that that word doesn't bring up beautiful things, but if we just get stuck on the word, we miss the who and what Paul is actually trying to draw us into in this verse. And so if you are interested... In going deeper into that, this question about God's sovereignty and human free will, Pastor Tim preached a message in our Both Ands series called God is Sovereign and I Am Free. And it's a great place to start engaging with this in a deeper way. You can talk to pastors. But we do encourage you, jump online, check out that message if you have more questions. But I will say this. The answer to that question, does God decide everything or do I have a part to play? I will say this. It is a great mystery, the answer to that question. 
The way that it was taught to me is this. Imagine there is a lake in a, in a beautiful, deep lake. And on both sides of the lake, there are two mountains. And on one side is the mountain of God's sovereignty. And that the Bible actually teaches that God is sovereign, that he, he sets things in motion. He decides. He chooses. He's first. He creates. He is in charge of the world that, world that he created. And he will accomplish his purposes and that he works all things together so that that happens. And so the Bible teaches this huge mountain that God is sovereign. But the Bible also teaches this other mountain, which is that we were created with free will, the ability as humans to exercise choice. And so what does that mean? Well, that means that you and I have the option to choose between option A and op option B, that we have decisions. We can make decisions about how we, ch which path we take, and that we are responsible for those choices, that we can choose between right and wrong. And so the Bible teaches that God is sovereign and that we also have free will. And the answer to how you resolve those two things, how they work together, the answer is way down deep at the depths of the bottom of that lake. It's deep. The water's murky, murky. We can never reach the bottom to find the answer that we're searching for. And this is what this whole issue comes about, is that it is a great mystery. The answer to how these two things to work together is this. God is sovereign and I'm free. It's a both and. And it's a divine mystery. And that shouldn't scare us. It shouldn't confuse us. And it actually, it shouldn't divide us either. But what it should do is unite us in absolute awe and wonder of the God that we worship. That he is so much bigger, so much greater, that we can't comprehend him fully. And yet, at the exact same time, he's a God who has revealed himself and made himself known to us. And we can be in personal relationship with that God. That this should actually unite us in awe and wonder and lead us into worship. That our God is not like us. That his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. He's in a class all his own. No one comes close. He has no rival. There is no one like our God. God is sovereign and I am free. And we worship a God that can make those things work together. And that's a deep mystery. And so don't get stuck on a word. But get focused on the who. Because that's what Paul's doing in this verse. So don't make verse 4 just about a debate. Make it about a who. And that's what Paul is going to do as he continues us on in this verse. Let's look again. Even as he chose us in him. There's the who. Before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. And so Paul says the human story of its relationship with God begins before the foundation of the world. So Paul in verse 4, it's miraculous. He stretches all the way back into a time before time be began when only God existed. And in that time before any human existed or any star was set in the sky or before God said, let there be light and there was light, before any person, any human was ever created, before God created the world, Paul says God formed a plan in his mind and that plan had to do with Jesus and with us. And so here's what's amazing, is that in eternity, you were on God's mind. He was thinking of you. And in some miraculous way, he put you and Jesus together. That Jesus and you have been God's game plan for all eternity. That's amazing. You were on God's mind before this world existed. He was thinking of you and he, he put you and his son Jesus together in a miraculous way. He was planning something to do with Jesus in eternity that would affect you and me. And that's an amazing truth to sit in this morning. God has a game plan. He's always had a game plan. This is what Paul is saying. And, and we need to understand what Paul is and is not saying here. In verse 4, Paul is not saying that God predetermined who would be in Christ, who would be saved 
What he is saying is that God chose that those in Christ, those who would connect themselves to Jesus through faith, would be holy and blameless in his sight. God chose Jesus as the one that anyone would believe in him, he would make holy and blameless in God's sight. In other words, God chose Jesus to be the one who would do what needed to be done. He chose Jesus to be our savior. He chose Jesus to die on a cross, to be buried and rise again three days later so that anyone who would put their faith in him would become holy and blameless in God's sight. He's saying that God decided what would happen to those who would believe in Jesus. And this was God's game plan. And like all good coaches, God had a game plan. So if you're a coach or you have played on a sports team, then you know that a good coach always has a game plan. They always have a, a system, a way of, that they want their team to play. And so what the, a good coach does is they gather their team around and they... They drop a game plan. Now I'm a hockey guy, and so this is a basketball um, whiteboard. So just bear with me because I was talking to Pastor Rod, who's a basketball coach. I have no idea how to run a basketball drill, so I'm just going to be drawing X's and O's. And so a coach will get his team together, and what that t- that coach will do is he'll drop. He say, "Okay, we got. Here's your point guard, and here's your your center, your your Shaq, uh, and here's uh, your Steph Curry, and uh, here's James Harden, and here's the play we're going to run. We're going to do this, and then we're going to pass, and then pass, and then pass, and then there's run around, shot, score, basket, and then this is how we're going to run down the down the, the court, we're going to run down together and then we're going to shoot a basket and again score and then that's what's going to happen and this is the game plan and you see all these X's and O's and you see all these different lines describing the game plan and the coach says, okay, now go and, go and live that game plan out. Pretty confusing, right? Makes you go cross-eyed just a little bit if you're like me. And so God's the best coach in history and in eternity, he came up with a plan And that plan was Jesus. Jesus has always been God's game plan. There has never been a time where Jesus was not the plan, the way, the one to unlock the best life for anyone who would believe in him. God's game plan all along was Jesus. Before he created the world, he chose Jesus to be our savior. And so Paul is saying in this verse that in eternity, God was looking ahead to a day in time and a day in history when the second person of the Trinity, Trinity, the Son, would become human and the person of Jesus would live a life as fully God and fully human, would go to a cross, die in the place that we deserved, die the death that we deserved, be buried, would rise again so that anyone who would put their faith in him would have their lives changed. And that's what Paul is saying that we would become holy and blameless before God because of what Jesus would have done. That was the game plan. Jesus is God's game plan, and we get to be the beneficiaries of what Jesus did. And so Paul is saying that no matter who we are or what we've done or, or didn't do or had done to us, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, then you become in Christ. What does that mean in Christ? To be in Christ. What does it mean to to be in Christ? Well, to be in Christ means that everything true of Jesus becomes true of me. Very simply, everything true of Jesus becomes true of those who believe in him. And the Bible says that Jesus was without spot. He was without blame or any deficiency whatsoever. 
that Jesus had no spot or no blemish in him. He was absolutely blameless. And so when we put our trust in Jesus, what is true of him becomes true of us. We are set apart, pure, clean, free from guilt. Our blame is removed. When God looks on us, he sees us as holy as his son is holy. And we don't deserve this and we could never earn it, but because of Jesus, we get it. Are you seeing the beauty of what Paul is saying here is that because of Jesus, you and I, when we trust in him, we are looked upon by the creator of the heavens and the earth as holy and blameless, as without blame, without guilt, as set apart. He looks on us in the same way he looks on his son, Jesus. So God's game plan is about this mind-blowing grace. In Jesus, he's opened the door for each and every one of us to be holy and blameless before him. Nothing we've done will be counted against us ever again. We can stand before God unashamed and unafraid, knowing that we are loved and accepted. Our future is secure, that we have an unconditional love that doesn't rise and fall day in and day out based upon what we do, that this love is ours always, a hope unshakable and impossible. In this verse, Paul is saying this was God's game plan. Through believing in Jesus, all of this, in verse 4, is activated in your life. It becomes true of you as it is true of Jesus. And so God has, God's plan has always been about Jesus. There is no other way. There is no other option than Jesus. He and he alone is the one who makes us holy and blameless in God's sight. And so this morning we can know that this just isn't a theory. This isn't some philosophy. This isn't some intellectual truth. But this is actually a living reality for the here and now for those who follow Jesus. And that reality, that truth has power to change your life in the day in and day out. And so here's the question that as we start to move towards the end of our time together, how does this, what we've just talked about, change my life if I embrace this reality? If I go and I really take hold of this and live this out. How does this change my here and now? How does this change me? How does this change how I experience school tomorrow? How does it change the way I go to work? How does it change the way I deal with my spouse? How does it change the way I deal with my kids? How does it change the way I see myself when I look in the mirror? How does this change our reality if we embrace it? Well, the first thing it does is it answers some of the deepest human questions we have. See, one of the deepest human questions that we have is do I matter, and am I worth something? And what we have just read is a resounding yes, you matter because you matter to God and you have since eternity. You matter because you matter to God and you have since eternity. You were on God's mind before the world was created. That's how much you matter. That's how significant you are. And I love one of the most famous verses in Psalm 139, and it echoes this reality, and it kind of un unfolds some of the most beautiful truths about us. Listen to the words that David, as he's talking to God, as he's reflecting on some of the realities that he's thinking about and meditating on. Listen to what he says about to God about us. He says, For you, God, formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes, God, saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. 
And so here's what David is saying is that God was thinking of you before you even existed, that he knew you before you were even formed. He had your days in mind before you ever actually lived a single one of them. God created him, your, him, you himself. You are his masterpiece. Did you know that you are a work of God himself? And God does not make mistakes. Let me tell you something. God does not make mistakes. Everything you are is exactly who God wanted you to be. You are purposefully, uniquely, beautifully, wonderfully, intentionally made by the creator of the universe. So do you matter? Yes, Paul says. You matter because you matter to God and you have since eternity. And so don't let your past or that person or that moment in time tell you otherwise. You matter to God. And when we realize that, it actually begins to shift how we see ourselves. And that leads us into a free life. Because when you get to look in the mirror and you don't see someone insignificant or you don't feel insignificant, when you start to realize that the opinion of the one who ultimately matters looks down on you and says, you matter, I've thought about you since eternity. I sent my son to die for you so that when you had that moment to respond to me and you said, yes, I made you holy and blameless in my sight. You begin to see how much your worth is. You begin to see how much your value is. And that changes how you engage in the everyday moments of your life because you realize that you matter. Because you matter to God and you have since eternity. And so the first reality that this changes is that it answers that deep human question, do I matter? And the second one is, is it also silences shame. Because some of us, we need to hear what we're talking about today because we hear those words holy and blameless and we get them in our mind, but we don't believe that in our hearts. We're struggling to believe that this is actually true of who we are because we don't feel holy and blameless. We actually feel unclean, unholy. We feel broken, unworthy. We feel like we have a laundry list of blame that people could heap up on us. And so some of us, this is a really hard truth, reality to get a grasp on because shame is speaking over your life. And shame is one of the most powerful forces that hold us back from this best life that God is offering us. Brené Brown in her book, Daring Greatly, she makes this distinction between guilt and shame, and she brings it up because sometimes we, we tend to, to, to confuse the two, and she says, guilt is I did something bad. Shame is I am bad. You see the difference? It's about me. It's about my identity. She says, shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. So shame is thinking, well, I, I'm not worthy or good enough for love. I'm unlovable. I don't belong. Who could ever love me? And if that is, is, is being spoken over your life, over time, it can really bring you down. And then this truth becomes really hard to believe. And, and if that is you this morning, can I just say me too? Because I've had a wrestling match, a fight against shame for a long time, and it's a tough opponent, and I've lost more than I've won. For most of my life, I felt unwanted. For most of my life, I felt not good enough. And that happens over a course of time. I've been looking back at my life recently, processing things. I just had my birthday, and so I was thinking about my life story, and one of the things and themes that's happened over and over again is this theme of rejection and abandonment. Over and over, people in my life, for whatever reason, have chosen to, to say no to me and, and to, to, to distance themselves from me, and what I've interpreted that as is that there's something wrong with me that makes that happen over and over again. And I felt shame, and it's a heavy burden to carry, and it's hard, and it's a tough opponent, and I've lost more than I have won. And I feel more often unlovable and unworthy than I, than I should. 
But what I need to see and what you need to see this morning is that if you've ever felt shame, if you've ever felt insignificant, if you've ever felt like you don't belong or there's something wrong with you or you're not good enough, remember what Paul is saying to you this morning. You matter because you matter to God and you have since eternity. You are not what people have said to you. You're not what has been done to you. You are not your past. You are not that moment of weakness. You are who God says you are. And in Jesus, when you connect your life to him, God looks at you and says you are homely and blameless in my sight, pure, beautiful, holy as my son is holy. You are my child and I love you and you are worth enough to send the thing that was most precious to me, my son Jesus, to die for you. That's what God says over you this morning and that's the voice we need to be listening to because shame can get loud but what Jesus has done should silence shame forever and it has. It's broken the grip and the power of it. And so this is not just a theory or a philosophy that Paul is talking about. This is a living reality that you and I can stand in and rejoice in. And it should lead us to do three things. The first is worship. This reality of what we've been talking about should lead us and move us to worship like Paul does. The whole of verse 1 to 14, the whole first part of chapter 1 is Paul worshiping God for who he is and what he's done in Jesus. He begins with praise, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he ends with worship by saying, to the praise of his glory. Worship is the heartbeat of this text from beginning to end. And that's what Paul's doing. He wants us, he's laying all this out as an act of worship, but in that same act, it's actually motivating worship within him And it should do the same for us. And so who or what do we worship? Paul tells us we worship Jesus. Because Jesus is worth more than anything. Paul, in another letter that he wrote to the church in Philippi, he actually says this. And if you look at Paul's life, he was the the, the top level of the Jewish kind of religious elite. He was the creme de la creme. He was the guy. He had, in the first part of chapter three in Philippians, he lays out his spiritual resume and there is no one that can come close to Paul. Some say he was a genius. He had the lineage. He had everything that you could look for. And after laying all of that out, look at what Paul says in verse seven. He says, but whatever gain I had, so whatever, all this stuff I've just unpacked, in the world's eyes, it's gain. In most people's eyes, it's a, it's, it's a bonus. It's good. This is going to set me up for life. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. And so what Paul is saying is that I had all the worldly stuff. Jesus is far better. He's worth more than anything. It's the best gift possible. The best life is found in Jesus because he's worth more than anything. And being found in him gives me everything that I could ever hope for better than anything I had before. Paul is saying Jesus is worth more than anyone because he activates every spiritual blessing. He's always been God's plan. He's the chosen one. He's the one who makes us holy and blameless. And so because of that, we worship. We worship. That's the only response is to marvel at Jesus. And in this book that I read just recently by Brennan Manning called The Signature of Jesus, he hits on this. And I just want to read you this quote. He says, if I ask myself, what am I doing walking around this planet? Why do I exist as a disciple of Jesus? I must answer for the sake of Christ. If the angels ask, it is the same answer. We exist for the sake of Jesus Christ. 
If the entire universe were suddenly to become articulate from north to south and east to west, it would cry out in chorus, we exist for the sake of Christ. The name of Jesus would issue from the seas and the mountains and valleys. It would be tapped out by the pattering rain. It would be written in the skies by the lightning. The storms would roar the name Jesus Christ, God hero, and the mountains would echo it back. The sun on its westward march through the heavens would chant a thunderous hymn. The whole universe is full of Christ. Worship. It's all because of Jesus. It's all for Jesus. And in Ephesians 1, Paul's reminding us of this breathtaking reality of what God has done for us in Jesus and that our only response in light of who he is and what he's done and what that means for us is to worship him in awe and wonder because we get everything Jesus earned and we did nothing to deserve it. That reality should lead us to worship and it should also lead us to pray. Because the amazing truths here are true for us. And I don't know about you, but it's really easy to get a hold of this in my mind, to intellectually understand that this is what happens when I've trusted in Jesus. But it's a whole other thing to know it in my heart. Someone once said that the longest distance in the world is that distance from your head to your heart. And this is a beautiful truth that can be amazingly beautiful, um, intellectually to get our heads around, but it's also so hard to to get our hearts around it. And so this truth doesn't just need our intellectual assent, it needs our heart's belief so that we are changed on the inside and that will change how we live on the outside. And so we need to move beyond knowing this in our minds to actually knowing it in our hearts and you do that by prayer. So the second half of chapter one, just beyond what this series is going to take us to in verse 14 is is verse 15 to 22, and there, Paul, out of praise, he begins to pray. And at one point in his prayer, he says, he asks this, he says in verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened or opened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And so Paul, what he's doing is he's actually moving from praise to prayer, asking that God would give the church in Ephesus uh, the ability to have their hearts open, to actually understand this, to know it beyond just an intellectual ascent, but a heart knowledge, knowing. And so we need to pray for God to open our eyes and our hearts to know this reality more deeply. We have to keep coming back to it. We have to ask him to show us, to give us wisdom, to reveal it to us. And we need to, because we need help to believe this truth so that we can conquer those feelings of not being enough and we need to rehearse it over and over in prayer and then rehearse it over and over as we we speak it to ourselves. We need to rehearse it over and over as we share it with the people in our lives and help them see themselves through God's eyes. So we need to worship and then we need to pray and then finally we need to rest. Do nothing. Because what God has done in Jesus, it is finished. Everything that needed to be done was done on the cross. And so we can never do enough to be enough, but we can rest because Jesus was enough for us. So rest in the glorious reality that Jesus has always been God's game plan and that because of him, we can know that we are God's child, loved since eternity, holy and blameless in Jesus when we put our trust in him. So rest. And all of that, everything we've said today should lead us to worship and that's what we're gonna do. So let's pray together. 
God, I, I love you so much. And I thank you for the, the journey it's been in these moments that we've got to share as, a, as, as, as friends, as a, as a church family, to just soak ourselves in the reality of what you've done for us in Jesus and, and how that has the power to change not just how we see ourselves, but our everyday life. And so I pray for us, God, that, that you would open the eyes of our heart, reveal to us the wonders and beauty of this eternal plan that you have had in Jesus, that you would help us in our hearts to actually grab a hold of the reality that we are holy and blameless in your eyes because of Jesus, that we would move beyond the intellectual ascent, but get it in our hearts, and that I pray that that would change how we live today, tomorrow, and the days ahead. And so we praise you, Jesus, because you're worthy to be praised. We thank you for all you've done and what that means for us. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.